Galatians chapter 5, verses 1 to 12. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offence of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. Now, as a pastor, I sometimes find myself giving a message at community events, and I had two of them in this last week. I had to give the message and pray at, at two of the Anzac services, and I preached at a funeral. And it's a tough gig preaching at these times, because um, I know that I've been given an opportunity to share the gospel, and so share the gospel I will, uh, not only because it's my duty, but it's my passion to share the gospel with those who haven't heard it. But I also know that if I share the true gospel at such events, some people will receive it with great joy and others, not so much. Uh, some people uh, will be offended by it and some will be deeply offended by it. And so the temptation is ever before the preacher to remove the offence of the gospel um, and to water it down a little bit just so that it's a bit more palatable for the hearers. But that's the thing. The offence of the gospel is very much a part of what the gospel is. So much so that Paul says of himself in a roundabout sort of the way that if he isn't being persecuted then he must have somehow removed the offence from the gospel and therefore it's not really the gospel that he's preaching. And so that makes you think, doesn't it, in, in our day and age of watered-down, inoffensive Christianity. So what's so offensive about the cross? Well, the offence of the cross is many and varied and, and opposites will find it offensive for opposite reasons. In our culture, the offence of the cross will be generally be quite different to the offence that Paul is describing here in Galatia. But then in other ways, the offence will be very similar. So in our culture, I reckon these two would be the greatest ways that, that Australians would consider the gospel to be offensive. Firstly, the cross and the gospel tells me that I am a sinner in need of a saviour. Now, most people are living in a delusion 
And that delusion is that it's the bad people who go to hell and it's the good people who go to heaven. And, of course, they'd be able to pick out a few people who they consider, oh, yes, they're definitely going down, all right? Um, Yes, they're not very nice people. But strangely enough, they and their friends and their family all seem to be the good people. And... um, for some reason, we sort of think that, that our, our good deeds have outweighed our bad deeds, and if so, then we might just do a few more good deeds, and, and, that's, and on the day of judgment, it's all going to be good. But the gospel of Jesus Christ completely demolishes that sense of self-righteousness, or any sense of self-righteousness that we might have. The message of the cross is we are all sinners in need of a saviour. Every one of us. And not one of us has enough righteousness on our own. But God loves us so much that he sent his one and only son to die for us on the cross and to take our sins away um, so that by his grace and mercy, we could be set free from these things. And so all who repent of sin and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and turn their hearts towards him, are saved. That's what the cross tells me. The cross tells me that I am a sinner, hopelessly lost, in need of a saviour. And to many people, that's very offensive. And the second way I reckon many Australians are offended by the cross now is because the gospel is exclusive. Uh, In a society that tends to value tolerance above all other virtues, uh, by the way, I don't think tolerance is a virtue at all. In fact, you won't find tolerance described as a virtue anywhere in any of the scripture, Old Testament or New Testament. Tolerance is never set forward as a value. But that is what our society seems to value above all else, live and let live. Um, And when that's what our society values, and the gospel says that Christ is the only way to be saved, that message is hated. But that doesn't stop it from being true. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The gospel is 100% exclusive. God's plan of salvation, if rejected, there is no backup. There is no alternative. We cannot choose our provider. So you know how in all sorts of ways we can choose our provider now. You can choose who your internet provider is going to be. You can choose who your telephone provider is going to be. If you're in the city, you can choose who your electricity provider is going to be. But we don't get to do that with salvation. There is only one provider. And our God, the one true God is a God of truth, and therefore he will not tolerate worship being given to any other God. Why not? Because that's a lie. And if our God is a God of truth, he cannot tolerate a lie. And so we unashamedly proclaim the the exclusive... I'm all tongue-tied today. We unashamedly proclaim the exclusivity of Jesus Christ. But let me clarify that. When I say that the gospel um, is exclusive, it's not exclusive in the way that, oh, some people are welcome and, and those other people, they're not welcome. In, in that regard, um, 
Christianity is the most inclusive way to be saved. And that's what the book of Galatians is actually about, that the gospel is proclaimed to male and female. It's proclaimed to Jew and Gentile. It's proclaimed to slave and free. All who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ are one in Christ Jesus. And so in that way, the gospel is inclusive, but there is no other way. And so in that regard, it's exclusive. So you with me? All are invited, but there is only one God to come to. So those are the, probably the two most offensive things in our culture about the gospel. Of course, there's others. But the issue at hand in Paul's letter to the Galatians, it's a bit different to this. In every culture, the offence of the gospel will be a bit different and in other ways, a bit similar. And the offence that Paul is talking about is the cross tells me that Christ is completely sufficient. Nothing else needs to be added. Verse 1 pretty much sets out the whole reason for this letter to the Galatians. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. You see, the message of the gospel is that Christ has set us free from our sin and the judgment that we deserved. For freedom, Christ has set us free. And this freedom has to be lived. So when I was in Bible college, Robin and I, we were worshipping at a local suburban church um, in Brisbane. It was a bit strange. Church is everywhere. So we live close enough to church that we used to actually walk to church of a Sunday morning. But there were two other churches of the same denomination that were actually closer, right? So we had three churches of the same denomination, all within an easy walk. Um, but we chose this one particular church and there was a lady who, while we were there who started coming along to church. Um, and I engaged her in conversation about faith and Christ and the church. And she said something to me that I'd never heard before and I've never heard it since. Um, she was telling me how this was a new thing for her, right? She, she wasn't, didn't see herself as, as a churchgoer up until now. I think she probably thought of herself as a Christian. Um, but this was a new thing for her. To, to be connected to a church. And she told me that, she said, because this is all new to me, I've decided to come to this church for a little while uh, because it's not so religious, all right? So what she meant by this is it was a contemporary service. Um, there were a few instruments in the band and families were involved and kids were a large part of the church. Um, the minister very rarely ever wore religious garb and the, there was no smells and bells and, and we didn't do the fixed liturgy out of the book. Um, it's pretty much like church here, really. But then she told me her plan. Her plan was she's going to start out here because it, it was pretty engaging to her and, and wasn't foreign to her. Um, and now this is my word, not hers. But what she described then was that that once she got used to that, then she would graduate to attending one of the inner city cathedrals uh, where religion was much more proper. 
um, where she could get the, the pipe organ, Mr. P. Yep, uh, get the pipe organ and the smells and bells and, and they'd do the liturgy out of the book and the minister would be wearing his dressing gown to church of a Sunday morning with his pretty scarves and, and girdle. You see, her understanding was there's got to be more than this. I need something more than just faith in Christ, but I'm going to have to work up to it because I'm, I'm, I'm just not up to it yet. And as I've told you, over the last couple of months, what was going on in Galatia was there were these who we called Judaizers had come into town and were telling these Gentile Christians in Galatia that Christ isn't enough, right? That, that if you want to be a Christian, you've also got to add this old covenant religious stuff to your faith. And one of the key issues there was the issue of circumcision. If you want to be a Christian, you got to start out by getting circumcised like us Jews. And Paul was ropeable. Um, if you didn't notice his anger coming through in that Bible reading, I think you need to go home and read it again. It's pretty obvious that the anger that he had, and it's a righteous anger. You know, it's allowed to get angry if you have righteous anger. But he wasn't pulling any punches, and with good reason. In fact, the last verse there, I think, said... I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. I mean, that's them's fighting words they are. You see, at one time, these Galatians had been pagans and they were worshipping a whole bunch of different gods. But Christ had set them free from that. Christ had set them free from this empty religion that they'd been bound to and their, their enslavement to their false gods. And now they are living in freedom. But then along come these other Jewish Christians saying, it's good that you believe in Jesus, but for you to be a good Christian, now you've got to start keeping the Jewish religious laws and regulations and start with circumcision. And that's why Paul was cranky. Now, the issue of circumcision is not an issue of the surgery itself. And it's not even an issue of the tradition. Those things aren't a problem. The problem, as Paul points out, is if you think that it's something that's going to make you a better Christian. Basically, what Paul's telling these people is if you accept the need for circumcision, then you are rejecting the gospel as you received it. Here's the logic of the argument. If they accept that they are obliged to keep some of the old covenant religious law, that's saying Christ isn't enough. And so he says that severs you from Christ because faith in Christ is to accept that Christ is enough. And by deciding that faith in Christ isn't enough, well, and, and that I have to do a few of these religious acts and take part in a few of these religious ceremonies, that's a rejection of the gospel. That's a rejection of being saved by faith. And so therefore, if I'm trying to add this bit of law and to be justified by the law and religious observances, then I have to keep all of the law. You see the logic? If I've rejected Christ, then I have to keep all the law. And something that Paul's already demonstrated here is that that's just something that's not, not possible. We just can't do it. And that's why we need Jesus in the first place. Basically, Paul's saying it's a package deal. If I sign up for some of the old covenant package, 
I have to sign up for all of it, which means I've rejected freedom in Christ and I've become a slave to the law. So can you understand why Paul's so cranky? They were slaves to false gods, but then they are set free by Christ, but now they're being enslaved again by those who are preaching the old covenant. And so he says, you are severed from Christ. And he actually says, you've fallen from grace. Now that's pretty harsh. How free are we in Christ? How free are we in Christ? Verse 5 says, For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. There's no doing, there's no striving, there's no working for it. It's all by faith. We're not busily trying to achieve our righteousness. We wait for it. God gives righteousness to us. But sometimes we still feel we need to do something to help with that. Robin and I, we, we've, we've run a lot of church camps over the years. Um, and Robin usually is the chief and I'm the helper when, when it's come to catering for camps. Um, so Robin comes up, <laughs> you've just seen her cooking ability. Who, who wouldn't want to eat their camp food? Mm -mm. Uh, <laughs> but I'm the brawns of the operation who, and, and sometimes the, the, the quieting voice that says, probably a little less topping, Robin. No. Uh, but we've sort of always seemed to be providing the food. But then we've occasionally gone away to a camp and the food is provided for you. And somebody else does the cooking. And, and you're sitting there and sort of thinking, hmm, I should, be, I should be helping them to prepare this. And, oh, no, 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 we're preparing it for you. Well, can we at least serve? No, 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 no. We're serving you. You just sit. Well, okay, we'll help with the washing up. No, we're doing the washing up. You know what I'm, you know what I'm saying? We, we just feel that we've got to be helping in some way. Now, that's the image that, that we're supposed to get here. The, the righteousness of Christ comes to us by grace. It's completely given. It's completely supplied. We don't have to go and prepare our own righteousness. We can't improve on the righteousness. Christ has done all of that for us at the cross. You see, whether you're a Jew or whether you're a Gentile, it doesn't matter. Whether you're circumcised or whether you're uncircumcised, it doesn't matter. It doesn't count for anything. Nothing else counts but only faith working through love. You know, when you become a Christian, you move out from the condemnation of God. But be prepared for the world's condemnation. You know, we sort of have the attitude that, well, once I become a Christian, I'll be so nice, everybody will love me. Not necessarily so. Be prepared for the condemnation of the world. You see, the world is offended by the gospel. And the world's idea of love is that if you offend me, then you obviously don't love me. But the reality is nothing could be further from the truth. Christianity is not at all loveless. The love begins with God. God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son. 
And for faith to be effective, it has to be connected with love. It has to be working through love. And I think this love is a two-way thing. It's the love that God has for us, but it's also the love that God enables us to have for him and the love that God enables us to have for other people. Evangelicalism, in the desire to rack up numbers of converts, I believe has in ways cheapened what faith is. And I'm going to say some pretty harsh things about evangelicals now. And I'm saying this because we're an evangelical church and, um, and this is something we need to hear. Somehow, we evangelic evangelicals have rendered faith down into something that we call the sinner's prayer. And we believe if, if I can get you to say the sinner's prayer, then I can chalk you up as another convert for my list for the year. But the only thing that counts is faith working through love. If I visit a dying person in their hospital bed, somebody who's rejected God for the whole life, and if I can manage to get them to say the sinner's prayer, that's actually not what counts, because that's just words. I could teach a budgie to say the sinner's prayer. It's a matter of the heart, you see. The sinner's prayer is only effective if it is verbalising the faith and the love that we have in our heart for God. Our faith, the love that we have for the God who loved us first. And I think you know this, don't you? It, we can't just say a few words in the hope that, okay, well, I've got my insurance policy now. If I happen to die, then I'm all good to go, but I'll just keep hating God with my heart and living my own life. Righto. Now, at this point, Paul's anger turns from the false message to the false teachers who are giving the message. And this is something that we're always going to see with, with the Apostle Paul. Um, he was a shepherd, you see. He was a shepherd who would always vigilantly guard his flock. And in verse 7, he says, You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? Now, I'm going to say something a bit controversial now. Living the Christian life is a bit like wacky races. Now, stick with me. Living the Christian life is like running a race. Don't let anything distract us. Don't let anything trip us up. Just keep on running. Keep your eyes fixed on the goal. Keep following Christ. Is there anyone here old enough to remember Dick Dastardly and his evil sidekick dog, Muttley? You remember him, Melissa? Robin remembers him. Mr. P, yes, okay. Put your hand up if you remember him. Yep, it's most of the old people. And I had my hand held high. I said, did you have your hand up? No, you didn't. You don't know them. You've heard of them. Oh. Dick Dastardly and Muttley. So we're going to play a little video clip. And now, here they are, the most daredevil group of daddy drivers to ever whirl their wheels in the wacky races. 
competing for the title of the world's wackiest racer. Cars are approaching the starting line. First is the Turbo Terrific, driven by Peter Perfect. Next, Rufus Roughcut and Sawtooth in the buzz wagon. Maneuvering for position is the Army Surplus Special. Right behind is the Ant Hill Mob in their bulletproof bomb. And there's ingenious inventor, Pat Pending in his converter car. Oh, and here's the lovely Penelope Pitstop, the glamour gal of the gas pedal. Next, we have the Bouldermobile with the Slag Brothers, Rock and Gravel. Lurching along is the Creepy Coop with the Gruesome Twosome. And right on their tail is the Red Max. And there's the Arkansas Chuckabug with Luke and Blubber Bear. Sneaking along last is that mean machine with those double-dealing do-batters, Dick Dastardly and his sidekick, Buckley. And even now, they're up to some dirty trick, and they're off to a standing start. And why not? They've been chained to a post by Shifty Dick Dastardly, who shifts it to the wrong gear. And away they go on the way out wacky races. Ah, childhood memories. Right, so in, in Wacky Races, uh, there's all these people running their race and then there's Dick Dastardly and Muttley and they're always trying to trip them up. They're always trying to, to slow them down and, and do all these cunning, conniving things to try and stop the others from getting ahead. Now, something I never understood was why he didn't just run the race himself because he'd always get in front of them and then he'd set his traps and, and if it only he kept going. But Paul's wanting to know... Who's the Dick Dastardly? Who's the Muttley that's hindered you and interfered in your race and stopped you from obeying the gospel? And he says, this persuasion is not from him who calls you. Who calls us? God. Do you know that not everything that you hear in a church and not everything that comes from a Christian teacher that you read or, or listen to on the internet, not every persuasive teaching that comes out of a preacher's mouth is from God. And that's why we need to be discerning. This is a sad reality, but, but right throughout history, and very much so today, and possibly even more so today, there's various unbiblical teachings, various side issues, various distractions, various conspiracy theories, various political machinations, and these are all presented as if these are really important things that Christians need to know, and, and the, these are things that Christians need to do, and these are things that Christians need to care about, and these are things that Christians need to be angry about, and you as a Christian, you need to embrace these things, you need to think this, you need to do this, you need to pass this on to all your contacts in your address book, otherwise you're not a good Christian. We're getting told this over and over and over again. And yet some of these things are completely untrue. And many of them are not the gospel. They're distractions, they're side issues, they're outright lies. And yet some people are convinced of these things and grab hold of these things. And wow, this is something I'm really passionate about. And they believe these things because somebody's been really persuasive and shared it with them, and they've presented it as the Christian way. They've been told this is what it means to be spiritual. They've been told this has been revealed by God for you. And they might even say, here's a few verses to back up what I'm saying. And because the one who has said these things has the appearance of being godly and has very persuasive words, they believe it. 
and they may be persuasive words, but they're not from God. And this is a hard thing to hear, but if Dick Dastardly and Muttley cut in on you and distract you from the pure gospel, they're not agents of God. Yes, they might be persuasive, but it's not persuasive words from God. It's the evil one who hinders us from obeying the truth of the gospel. And Paul says, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. I love bread. Who loves bread? Most of us love bread, yep. The Bible says man cannot live on bread alone. Obviously knew that he also needs butter. Um, But most of our bread today, it's made with yeast, right? It's the yeast is the leaven that makes the bread rise to this nice airy consistency instead of being a hard lump. Now, yeast is a very clean product, very nice, very well presented in their little shiny bags and whatnot. Uh, But of course, the other way to leaven bread and the way that it was back then, and it's something which has taken on again a little bit recently, is, I think now they call it sourdough, but what they do is that you you keep a little piece of old mouldy dough and keep it in, in in a jar or something. And so when you're making your bread, you take a little piece, a tiny little bit of this old mouldy dough and you put it in with the dough that you're making and you knead it through the whole, the whole batch. And the respiration of the fungal activity is what causes the bread to rise, right? So a tiny little bit of leaven leavens the whole batch. And biblically, leaven came to represent corruption. Fermentation is actually the process of corruption. The bread's going rotten. The the thing is, we just have to bake it in time to to stop that process from happening. And what Paul's saying is a little bit of corruption in the church, a little bit of bad teaching, has to be stopped in its tracks. Why? Because it's going to corrupt the whole batch. It'll corrupt the whole church. It's not so long ago I was having a conversation with somebody about how the church they were connected with wasn't giving biblical teaching. Um, I could see that, but I didn't tell this person that. They told me. Um, and, and I said to them, well, why are you still going there? And they said, well, I know my Bible pretty well and I can, I can tell what's right and what's wrong and so I just don't take any notice of the wrong stuff that they tell me because and, and I, I know what's right. Now, there's a couple of problems with that. Firstly, by them staying, um, there's others there who don't know their Bibles very well, brand new Christians. And, but they can look and say, oh, well, this person, they know their Bible pretty well, so it must all be right, okay. And so, so basically their, their very presence gives an appearance of their approval and their agreement. But the second problem is a little leaven leavens the whole lump. One cannot remain unaffected. If, if it's not rejected outright, it will corrupt the whole character of that whole church. And so Paul's solution for false teaching, 
Well, it's certainly not live and let live. It's deal with it. And he's quite blunt here. There is no place for corruption of the gospel to be taught in the Christian church. He's actually calling on the Galatians to judge the persuasive one who has been leading them away from obeying the true gospel. In verse 10, he says, I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view and that the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whatever it is. Sorry, whoever he is. And so, a third offence of the cross, the third way that the gospel of Christ is found offensive is because the gospel says Christ is enough. We don't need to add works. We don't need to add religious practices. We don't need to add particular particular gifts of the Holy Spirit. We don't need to add anything. Christ is enough. And I think the best response to that is worship. And so we might move now straight into singing that song, Christ is Enough.